Well, let's be seated. And uh, Ben's introduction to the service uh, with the dirty laundry image just reminded me of something that I absolutely know my parents watching online right now recall, and that was my first uh, trip home from college. Not only did I bring an entire duffel full of dirty laundry, but mum and dad, what was it that was sandwiched in between the dirty clothes? All my dirty crockery as well. I got them to do my plates as well as my laundry. And uh, I'm really sorry. So we've reached the end of our series on what the gospel does. And uh, some of these teachings, they've been quite technical, have they not? Just filling in gaps in what we know, like all of that stuff about uh, the, the way in which Jesus returns on the Day of Judgment. And some of the talks have been tender, just uh, addressing any particular trouble we may be in if we're under pressure or struggling in some way. We've preached on those parts of the letter that bring hope, and any pastor will tell you that they line up to give talks like that. There's nothing quite like saying to someone who's suffering, are you in trouble? Well, let me tell you more about Jesus Christ. Let me give you hope, and let me show you what he's done for me. We love that kind of thing. And of course, uh, some parts of this letter have been much, much more difficult to preach, which is why I made Ben and uh, Ben do them instead. That's my privilege. But uh, it's not a cynical ploy to sort of palm off the difficult bits of this letter, actually. The reason I did it was so that I can now talk to you about what it feels like to preach like that. What is it like when you get a difficult passage to preach? And I can do it because I've just done the easy bits. And this will not be a weird self-serving talk where you think I'm defending myself, but instead uh, I'm being really asking you to be in in their shoes. So let's turn to chapter 5, to the end of the letter, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12. Front-loading the talk, we're going to look a lot in verses 12 and 13, which are densely packed with theology, so you'll want it open. And Paul says this, We ask you, brothers, addressing the whole church, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Now, respect, that is an interesting translation. What it really means is get to know. That's what the word means. And I just want you to uh, reflect on this. How many times have you been really irritated by something at home or at work? You know, say there's dirty mugs left out on the side or someone's failed to, to refill the photocopier again and you rant about it. You say, they've done it again. You know, you're sick of this thing. And in the middle of the rant, you discover that, in fact, it was one of your closest friends that did it. And suddenly the tune changes. Well, you know, it's not that big of a deal. It doesn't really matter, does it? That change was not because the thing that was done was any less annoying to you suddenly. But it was because you discovered that you knew the person who had done it. And and your love for them changed your feeling about the thing. Get to know your pastor. Esteem your pastor in love. And esteem, that's an interesting word. It doesn't mean in the original language what it means to us in English. It really means let them lead you. That's what the word means, let them lead. If your pastor only ever said and only ever did what you thought then there would be absolutely no point in having one. You could just get a mirror, couldn't you? (laughs) And if the gospel only ever said and only ever did what you 
thought there'd be no point in having the gospel either. You could just get a diary, couldn't you? Dear me, I quite feel like doing this thing today. Do I agree? Yeah, have at it. That could be your church. So this command to let your leaders lead and and to love them and to follow them is amplified by the comment that comes next, that whether you choose to do this or not, objectively, nonetheless, they are still in charge of you in the Lord. They're over you. Their authority comes from Jesus. And that means that when they speak the gospel, they are speaking with the authority of Christ himself, and they speak for him. And of course, if they go off piste and they just make it up, then they answer to him instead for maligning his name and making stuff up that goes beyond what he would say. So uh, to be clear, by the way, when I talk about ministers, I'm not just talking about my brother's Ben. I, uh, I don't just mean the ordained. There are many ministers in this church. There's one on this side of the room as well. I'm absolutely convinced that if the Apostle Paul decided to do a a church visit, a mystery shopper, and he was here with us today, he would certainly include about half the staff team, ordained or not, within this category of leader. He would absolutely agree with me that the wardens are in this category, probably the whole vestry, probably the key leaders of any individual ministry in this church, And, uh, you know, I would look at my own wife, Kat, and I would suggest to you that in most weeks she teaches and pastors more than I do. So it's a broad category. And uh, don't just look at a certificate on a wall or a piece of plastic around the neck. Look at what a person does first. What do gospel leaders do? 20% of our church are gospel leaders. What do they do? And what is it that makes that 20% worthy of esteem and respect and love. What do they do? Three things. You can see them right here. We're still in the same verse, 12. Maybe we're moving into 13. I don't have it in my notes, but it's the start of the passage. What do they do? They labor, rule, and admonish. Now, we're going to look at these in reverse. Admonish. Uh, What comes to mind when you hear that word admonish? Uh, what, what gesture or, or, or kind of action. Uh, someone last night just sort of wagged a finger at me. Yeah, you, you're with me, Lois. That's right. There's a sort of uh, school mom, sort of hectoring image there, isn't there? Admonish. Sounds harsh. It's actually a very gentle word in Greek. And uh, all it means is to put things on people's minds. That's all it means. Just put something on your mind. The, the word for rule and it's translated over. You'll see it says over in ESV. I'm translating it rule over. It just means to be the holder-upperer of a thing, like these columns, architectural term. Or a, a military word, actually, this rule over. It means rank. It's a military rank. But do you notice how the, the sort of authoritarian image of this military rank is tempered or, or modified by this little phrase, among? So when you think of a leader as having this rank over you, don't be thinking of a general or an admiral or a head of state or someone like that that you see on a platform and you have to obey but you never get to know because they're among you. More like a 
captain in the trench alongside you. That's the image of a leader here. So already what we have is positional rank and we have an instructional role, but these images are modified with proximity and with love. And now you're going to see why we're taking them in reverse because the images are tempered again by the other thing on this list, which is labor. Basic, dirty work. That's what the 20% do. So next time you're driving along and you see a road crew, like doing a tree or, or just digging up the road, putting in cable, whatever, and you see that everyone's busy and there's the owner of the business shouting and then there's the foreman shouting and there's the technicians doing all the technical stuff and then lowest of the low, there's the geezer with the stick or the flag just kind of turning it around and you drive past that dude and you think, oh man, that is a terrible job. I'm glad I'm not them in the heat, in the snow, in the rain, in the hail. I'm glad I'm not that guy. Recognize that is probably what Paul means when he says the word labor. Basic dirty work, the worst job. And then in Greek, as it is in English, this word labor has a double meaning. It can also mean to give birth. That's an image that Paul has used several times in the letter to describe what people are doing when they're working hard. They're, they're sort of brewing something up and it's going to hurt when it comes out. Is there possibly a greater image for us of a church as to what it means to, to, to lead uh, than, than to give birth? It's painful. It's difficult. And, uh, Ministering, like labouring, hurts. Now, I've lost count of the, uh, the bridges in Pittsburgh that I've driven over in tears because I've come back from some hospital visit or, or the last rites or something like that, just, just you know, heaving with tears. And uh, a few years ago, I developed a, a painful medical condition, and I'm sharing this with you because I, I trust you, uh, it, it is objectively within the category of oversharing, uh, or it would be if we were not who we really are, which is, of course, a family. So I can tell you, from time to time, I get these really painful cramps or spasms, and they radiate around my body, and they, they last about two hours. They come on at night. There's a doctor diagnosing me here. I can see your grin, Caleb. And uh, I have to rock or pace around uh, at night until they, they go away. And I figured that they're triggered by the pressures of the job. That's what makes these things come on. And not the kind of like, ooh, I've got too many emails to do kind of a pressure. Or, you know, ooh, what if the money runs out? Or, ooh, what if they don't laugh at my jokes? Or anything like that. Let me be clear. This pressure that I speak of is not insecurity. It is love. They're my feelings about you that, that trigger these these kind of painful things. The Greek word in the Bible for feelings uh, literally means guts. You uh, splagnoi, when, when Paul does that magnificent doxology at the beginning of the book of Philippians, he talks about the bowels of compassion in the King James Version. Uh, the, the guts, this is where our, our passions churn, uh, is it not? We talk about being gutted when something bad has happened. You know, we talk about... Uh, you know, having guts when we do something brave. When one of you is far from God, 
it hurts me. When one of you is in unrepentant sin and you refuse to listen to a godly admonition, I wake up. When one of you is seeking after some footling trifle of this world and exchanging this thing that will be destroyed for what could be yours in eternity, I wake up. And I worry about it. When one of you goes even further than that and decides instead to choose judgment over grace and hell over eternity with Christ, it hurts. And if one of you is trapped in addiction or depressed or being bullied at work, I I, I have to rock at night as I pray for you and it wakes me up. I've never gestated a baby in my life. But uh, there, there are some nights where I've wondered if there might be one in there. Just a little one, right? You know, I know it's, I know it's hard to give birth. Don't kill me. Maybe like a one-pounder. But I do, I do sometimes wonder what's going on. I'm not sharing this with you for sympathy, by the way. All right, I don't want you to start hiding things from me now. And go, oh, no, I can't tell him about that because he'll do the weird gut thing. All right, don't, don't do that. I actually think God might well have given me this this thing for a reason, and that is to force me to need him, to force me to repent of thinking that my ministry is down to me. I think that's why it's there, because I'm praying when I get that thing. And if I didn't have that thing, you know what I'd be doing? I'd be asleep. (laughs) So you want a leader who has a gut thing, over you. And there's 20% of this church are leaders. You want leaders who do the gut thing or something like it. You don't have to do this specific weird condition, but you want someone that aches with love for you. Why do you want someone like that over you? Well, next Paul says, because this relationship that he's describing here of pastor to church, vestry member to church, eldership to church, staff team to church, head of ministry to church, head of women's group to women's group, is not merely about informing you, but about conforming you. It's not just about telling you things. It's about showing you things and calling you up into discipleship and more of the Spirit. Verse 13, be at peace among yourselves. You see how lateral this is. There's now a call to the whole body. He's already addressed the brothers and sisters, the whole church. There's a call to everybody to start changing. We all have a ministry. And in verse 14, he says, we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idol. You. There's that same word, admonish. The very same word that he has told the leaders to do, the 20%, he's actually telling 100% to do. We all have an instructional role. This is why you need good leadership, because they're going to show you how to do it. We all have a teaching role. We all have the job of correcting one another. And, and, And I would say, your job of correcting one another will be far more effective than mine. Because you can discount what I say. He's on the payroll. He's going to say it. He's the pastor. Well, here he goes again. When you admonish one another, that is powerful. That is far more effective than anything I can do. And uh, when you do it, be warned. People don't like it. So he says this, encourage the faint-hearted. 
Help the weak, be patient with them all. Three modifiers, three gentle modifiers to remind you that when you admonish, it's not a finger wagging, look how good I am, (laughs) what's up with you? But it's very kind, very tender, very much alongside. Next, he amplifies what he modifies. He says in verse 15, see that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good. So you admonish someone, they fight back you love back. You have to be gentle, even if they're being rude. It's so easy, I think, to get into a sort of cycle of back and forth, tit for tat. It's easy uh, for conflict to to brew, especially in church. Like, who ever heard of a church splitting? Like, this is what we do. We've been doing it since the Great Schism, haven't we? It's what we do. Uh, But we shouldn't. Because the gospel is the best way to heal a relationship. If you're in an argument with someone and one of you has the gospel, the argument should quickly end. And if your relationship is fractured, the gospel will put it back together. It's what the gospel does. The gospel heals. The gospel has healed some of the worst conflicts that we've ever seen. In the 70s and the 80s in Liverpool, where I was born and and when... The, uh, the city of Liverpool was divided along sectarian lines, and many of the troubles in Northern Ireland had, had spilled over the Irish Sea into Liverpool. And uh, football, soccer, was tainted by it. Liverpool and Everton uh, were, were sort of sectarian teams. For some reason, I got the Catholic one. I don't know why, but uh, I think they were better. But, uh, you know, we, we had this, this thing where there was violence at the games and fights in the stadium and and fights in the street. There were no-go areas for people of different religions within the city. Uh, Streets were divided. Bombs went off. Lives were lost in Liverpool as Protestants and Catholics fought. And in the midst of this fratricide and this hate, God raised up two pastors two leaders in his one church. And together, these two dudes, they worked for peace. Derek Warlock, the Roman Catholic archbishop. I mean, only the gospel can turn someone called Warlock into a, <laughs> into a bishop. But uh, Derek Warlock and uh, David Shepherd, the Anglican bishop of Liverpool, they met. And as they worked for peace... They started to do these press conferences together, and you'll never guess where they held the press conferences. They held them behind a communion table. What a genius. It was like a microphone and then candles and stuff. All the the stuff was still on the table. Like, you know, how powerfully symbolic as these two leaders met for peace. And they didn't just do a few press conferences, because that ain't leadership. They hung out together. They were inseparable. These two guys became so inseparable that the locals got a nickname for them. They started to call them fish and chips because they go together. You can't, you can't have fish without chips. It's horrible. And, and, and so that's, they had a nickname. You know you're onto a winner when, when they're making jokes about you. It, it had landed, this gospel of, of peace. And today, you know, their cathedrals are actually only a few hundred yards apart on the same street. And today, right now, you can go and you can see it or just Google it. There's, there's a statue that exists exactly halfway between those two great cathedrals with a, each 
minister facing one another in peace. And the street that it's on, they call hope. That is what the gospel does. No one gets blown up anymore over religion in that town. It's what the gospel does. It breaks our hearts. It breaks our pride. Well, you did this thing and I'm cross with you. So I'm going to hold this over you and I'm going to get you back. Not if you've got the gospel. You can't do that. Jesus is not doing that for you. It just breaks that heart. It breaks that pride. It breaks your guts. It gives you hope. If you hurt, if you're the one who's been hurt, the gospel has the power to heal. I mean, how much bravery was there in laying down that hurt for the sake of peace? And what the gospel does is it turns everyone into ministers of some kind. It turns the 20% into the 100%. It's what the gospel does. And then, is it any wonder that Paul just barrages us now with a list of, of what the gospel does? I can only rush through them because it's sort of two sermons in one. But uh, look with me just, just at what the, what the gospel does. Verse 16, there's joy. It overwhelms you. Prayer, it does not cease. Verse 17, thanks. Verse 18, more and more of the Spirit. Do not quench him. Don't see the Holy Spirit starting to smolder and flicker into flame in your church and run up with a bucket of water and say, enough of that, thank you very much. Expect the Holy Spirit to manifest in power. Don't be afraid of the power of the Holy Spirit. Expect prophecy. Expect manifestations of the Holy Spirit in interpretive gifts. And if you feel like you're falling apart, if you feel like you're falling short when compared to any of the exhortations in these talks, if you feel unholy, if you feel not good enough compared to other people in this church, there is hope. Verse 23 says, Now may the God of peace himself personally, God is in the trench with you, Christ our captain, may God himself sanctify you, cleanse you, set you apart, make you holy, consecrate you, separate you, render you venerable, purify you, expiate you, and free you from sin. Most Greek words have three definitions. This one gets about 100. It's a big word. It's the same word that we use to describe what we do at Holy Communion as we consecrate this bread and this wine to remind us of the grace of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for you on the cross. May the God of peace himself, in the trench with you, Christ our captain, ordain you to a ministry. And may you be kept blameless. May he sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body, meaning all of you in every way, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you might be thinking at this point, this is a lot more than I bargained for. I didn't think this morning I was coming to my own ordination service. You might be thinking, this is ridiculous. You can't expect me to live up to this. You can't expect me to be suitable for being a leader in the church. You might be thinking, I'm not suitable for ministry. And I'm certainly not suitable for the day of judgment. If Christ returns now, I'm on the bubble. No one is suitable. I'm not. Ask Catherine. It's ridiculous that I'm a minister of the gospel. I'm the chief sinner. Except for the power of the gospel. Except for the beautiful power of the gospel. 
It's what the gospel does, is he renders us worthy. And it's not us. Never us. Verse 24 says, he who calls you is faithful. I'm faithless. That's what I bring to this party. Faithlessness, pretty good spreadsheets and a few mediocre jokes, and that's all I've got. But he will surely do it. How does he do it? Tell us one more time, Paul. Just just tell us that one again, that story again, verse 28, by grace. The gospel is grace. The gospel is the work of Christ on the cross for you. That's what it is. Ordaining you into holiness, into power, into more and more of the Holy Spirit. That's what the gospel does. So let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, I can't believe that you would call us venerable. I can't believe that you would use ancient term to describe us in ordination language, but you do. And so, Father God, if if we're not worthy so much as even to gather up the crumbs under your table, I thank you that in so many ways you've given us a seat at that table and a presidential position at that table. Father, it's a, it's a mystery to us that you would choose us, but you have. And so, Lord, please equip us for that role of, of admonition. God, we just pray that you'd give us esteem for those that lead amongst us. I, I pray for my bosses, for, for Chris and for Catherine, our wardens, and for Martin, our bishop. And God, I just pray for any who minister in this church. I pray that all would minister in this church because of what you do. In the name of Jesus, amen.